to another episode of The Accounting Insider. Today's guest is Rosie Bat. Rosie is actually a neighbour of mine. She operates a legal firm a couple of doors down from mine. It's a really interesting story because she's been there 15 years. I've been in my office for 10, but we've only like collaborated in the last year. She's got a really interesting story to tell. I really uh, it was a really enjoyable podcast to record with her. She runs an amazing business. She's done a lot of wills and estates. And today we're talking all things related to wills and estates. Let's jump into the show. This is the Accounting Insider Show. So this is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, you, there's no reason to stop. You just get better and better at it. You just make so much money out of it. Today, I'm talking to Rosie Bat. Now, Rosie Bat is a lawyer in Adelaide. Um, this is an interesting story, but Rosie's actually been operating a few doors down from my office for 10 years, and we've never actually met. I mean, that is so bizarre. I, I've heard about you, but for one reason or another, we lead these totally separate lives. But in the last 12 months, we've started to interact with each other, and it's been fantastic. And that was actually from a mutual client that we both knew. And he grabbed your hand, led you up here, led you in the door, and we sat down and had a meeting. And that was fantastic. That started this great relationship. Um, so... Thank you, David. <laughs> yeah, thank you, David, exactly. So that's been awesome. Um, so I'm really excited to sit down with you today, Rosie. Um, I view you as a, um, a top lawyer in Adelaide. Um, you've got so much to offer. You really have carved out a niche for yourself in the whole um, – ho- your whole team are female. Um, At the moment. You're on a lot of <laughs> – you're on a lot of boards. Um, you've – operated in as partners in the big end of town in the law firms but now you've chosen to go out on your own i think it's a fascinating story um can you tell us a little bit about your background where you went to school why you chose law all of that stuff well that's a big ask kim um i went to school in in this area actually at uh, seymour and uh, went to Adelaide University, wanted to do law since I was 14, so I've been one of those lucky people that I've always known what I wanted to do, and it's I've always loved my job. I don't think there's been a day in my life where I haven't loved my job, so I'm very, very lucky. Um, I, um, As you said, I was uh, quite aspirational, worked very hard, became a partner at Mintra Ellison, and had two children, Ultimately, I set up my own firm because I, I wanted to have a work-life balance and I wanted my staff to have a work-life balance. Um, the, the long, crazy hours of working in large legal firms was not something that I thought was healthy for me or anybody else. Yeah. I found that too because I used to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers and it was just, you know, I was in the office till 8, 9 at night, most nights, and going there on the weekends to study or do work. And now I'm working for myself. I don't know. I'm so never different. doing that. No. I mean, I spent years where I, I didn't ever have an Easter break. Hmm. Um, in fact, well, you know, anyway, I've worked on Christmas Day even. So <laughs> crazy stuff. So, um, and that's so unhealthy. Yeah. So, so how many years have you been operating down the road now? Well, it's actually, I think, nearly 15. 15 years. So yes. you were there five years before yes. me. Yes, yeah. And ironically, the gentleman that I bought this building that we're sitting in today, he owned that building. 
But for one reason or another, he sold it, and I think that it wasn't you who bought it off of him, but there was another person. No, I think there was somebody in between. It was, yeah. I think it was going to be a health, some, you know, health chain, and then the whole chain got sold before they opened up there. And what have you found, like, the whole um, feminine side to your practice? Has that been um, well-received? Have you found it? Um, what's been the response to the business community by the business community in Adelaide? So when I started, I wanted everybody to appreciate that just because I was in the suburbs and not in a um, Kingdom Street tower, um, that I hadn't changed. Um, I'm, I'm a professional and I value my reputation, I value quality, and I, I was providing exactly the same service and advice but able to do it in a much more user-friendly environment. And what I found is that people in Adelaide love to be able to drive up and park their car out the front. It's just one of those Adelaide things. So being here where we are um, on the corner of Morehouse and Glen Olsen Road, parking is so easy. It's pretty. It's attractive. The, um, the business environment, just like yours here, Kim, people come in, they feel comfortable, mm. they immediately relax. We, want to have a, we don't have an intimidating environment. And, and from the outset, that's what we've tried to do for clients, to make the visit to your lawyer a, a, a pleasant experience rather than a terrifying experience. Now, you are very active in the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Excuse my voice today. I'm just getting over the flu, but I love this deep resonance. John Law's, Law's voice. I should be doing all my podcasts today. I've dreamt of um, having a voice like this forever. But anyway, getting back to it, Australian Institute of Company Directors. Now, you're a lecturer for them? Yes. Well, they, we refer to it as a facilitation okay, facilitate. in the various courses that um, are presented in, in teaching company directors or teaching people how to be company directors or teaching executives how to relate to company directors. Uh, board governance work, uh, reporting to the board, uh, in, and across all sectors, not-for-profit, um, publicly listed, um, commercial, family. It, it covers all types of boards. So, um, yeah, no, it's been a fantastic – it's a fantastic organisation and one that I really enjoy working with. So you just got back from um – the Dubai, Dubai <laughs> which I'm blown away by, yeah. but you flew over there to facilitate a... Well, it's a course that AICD does, which is called the International Company Directors Course, and they're really, in the last short period of time, rolling that out across the world. Um, Dubai, Hong Kong, Singapore, Fiji, so um, really taking the opportunity of expanding and exporting. So you were in Dubai for a week? Well, I was. I flew in, I was there for a day, and then I presented um, on the Monday. Dubai, of course, has a different week than we do. Their week starts on Sunday, finishes on Thursday. Oh, business week? Yep. They work on Sunday? Yeah. It's a, it's a different um, background there, Kim, different uh, religious background and yeah. political. So you flew in, lobbed that night, went to bed, and then got up the next morning and gave the lecture? No, I, had a, I arrived at 1 o'clock in the morning, had that day, and then facilitated the following day. So that was two days and yes. then flew back the next day? Well, I actually decided to stay a couple of days and have a look around, but I was, so I was away for about five days. 
And are you doing? I imagine you're doing this regularly for them. Well, this has just started, so okay. I'm hoping to do do it. It was a, an amazing experience. And what's your aspect of the course that you're? Uh, it's delivering? about the uh, director's duties and obligations, mm-hmm. and international law internationally, and also the legal environment internationally. So if and this affects a lot of companies in Australia, Kim. I, I have a lot of companies who are either exporting overseas or they are interacting and setting up businesses overseas. It's not uncommon these days. We really are in a global oh, I find community. that as well with the number of customers we've now got in the USA um, and we're looking at USA tax returns and having to become fully versed in that aspect yes. while we're doing the Australian tax yes. returns. It's become more, yes. more common. Yeah. Um, now, today I really want to drill down on wills and estates. And I know this is probably um, an area that uh, I, I, well, I hope that you don't mind talking about it today because Kim, I think it's a highly underrated topic, and it's something that everybody has to do. And in my business, um, a lot of my clients are small to medium-sized businesses, often family-owned. Succession planning and wealth creation planning, uh, passing on the assets, is so important. So important. Okay, so I remember this was about three years ago. I got a phone call at 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning from a client saying Dad's died. And I'm lying in bed answering my phone, and I recognise the voice. And, you know, this person went into meltdown. Dad had died in a hospital at 11 o'clock the night before. Have you had similar experiences to that? I'm going to guess that Dad was worth a bit of money. Dad was worth a squillion. <laughs> I think that's the prerequisite for that sort of phone call, Kim. Um, The urgency of those phone calls seems to accelerate with the amount of money involved and with the uncertainty about whether I'm in the will or not. So, you know, the ways that those are avoided is that, you know, if people make wills, the, the optimum is that the whole family knows what's going to be in the will. They know what the planning is. Now, that's the optimum situation. And probably 80% of the time, it's not an optimum situation because there's a relationship breakdown, uh, there's a child with mental health problems, drug addiction, uh, uh, there's uh, uh, blended families. Um, I'd say 80% of the time it's not straightforward uh, and people don't feel like they can talk about what's in their will with their, with their children and with their close relatives. So there's a big tip, isn't it? If, if you can sit down with your parents and go through it beforehand, it makes life so easy. If there's going to be an argument or a dispute, it's best to have it well before that person passes away. And people too often put their head in the sand and just think, I I won't deal with it. Sometimes people think if they don't make a will, that will will solve the problem. Makes it worse. (laughs) Just It makes it worse. And so what will happen if they don't make a will and they've got some assets, uh, there's legislation that will be imposed on their estate and it's most more likely that people will be making claims and saying, well, that's not fair, I want this or something else. Are you seeing more and more pets included in mills? Pets. The, the provision for pets. 
Um, look, probably not, Kim, because I'm not an advocate of putting pet provisions in wills. I try and steer people towards nominating a person who would be the person to, to take over the ownership of their pet if they have a pet when they die. Because putting pet provisions in your will will might be good for lawyers because it might mean that they come back and make a new will when that pet dies and the situation changes, but it will make your will, uh, it won't last as long. It will, it will be outdated quite quickly. So a friend of mine um, is a different story. His neighbour died. He found her dead in her chair in her house, a bottle of champagne alongside of her. Way to go. Way to go. <laughs> Rock star. Um, little dog. Was there, you know, on the ground? Um, he caught. She was eighty years old. He did say he tried to revive her mouth to mouth. He said it was a bit uncomfortable, but uh, the ambulance came, took her away. He got left the dog by the lady in the will. Yeah, yeah. And and then there was a trust fund, and I think it was about twenty twenty five thousand. So my question is. And, and he loves the dog and it lives with him and all of that. And he told them that he didn't want the money, but they gave it to him. Of course him. he loves the dog. <laughs> <laughs> but if you got $25,000 and the dog died in the first two weeks, ran out on the road, got hit by a car, do you have the money back? Well, it will totally depend on how the will's been written. And I'm sure there's been a couple of court cases about that. Um, yeah, so good good drafting is very important to sort of try. Yeah, and in every scenario, trying to think, what are the scenarios? Hmm. Now, another question. Now, with 50% of marriages ending divorce, blended families, <clears throat> what I'm seeing more and more is kids who haven't spoken to their dad or mum for 20 years in one situation, this person, um, he didn't even take the phone call from his dad on his 21st birthday. It really, mm. you know, mm. really hurt his dad. Mm. Um, he came to me, uh, so there were four kids involved. I almost talked him into going equal distribution to all of the kids, all of the biological kids. Do you, and um, anyway, that was always going to be messy. Um, I'm sort of happy in a way that I spoke to him to do that because I thought it was the right thing. Mm. But there was so much history that I wasn't aware of. Mm. Um, it was it, it was always going to be messy. What's your advice to people when they come to you and there's that situation? Do you try to encourage them to be fair and equitable or do you tell them they can do what they like but get them set up for a challenge to the will down the track if it's inequitable. Mm. Look, it, some people find it a shock when they come and they want to make a will and when I tell them that if they leave a child out completely that that child will, will potentially have the right under the law to make a claim because it's unfair or un- unequitable. Um, people can get very upset about that and, and say, but hang on, it's my money. It's my assets. I want to be able to leave it the way I want to leave it. Mm. Why can't I do that? And the reality is, yes, you can, but the law does provide the right for children, grandchildren on occasion, 
to bring claims if if it's unfair or un, or or, or un, un, inequitable. Now the, that law's been around for a long time now. There's a lot of cases about it. Um, we have a lot of um, case law to draw on. We know that, <clears throat> that we know pretty well what circumstances the courts would probably give something to those people who've been left out of the will. So as a lawyer, my job is to let people who are making wills know that um, and the advice is usually it is either better to give them something, mm-hmm. to give the estranged children something, but at the very least to write into the will why you have not given them something. Just, look, I've just done one this week um, where the, the, the estranged child is a drug addict, mm-hmm. is in their um, you know, 40s, they've had so much help over the last 25 years. They've had so many houses bought for them, so many cars, so many things paid for, uh, and it's a big estate. But these parents do not want to leave another cent. Or they don't want to give another cent, um, having already given this during that person's lifetime. So the best thing we can do, you know, some strategies, but one is to make sure that there's plenty of evidence about what has already been given. I think that's the key, isn't it? Like if, if you if, if you can see, from my experience, um, if you can see this onslaught that's going to happen, but you're well-versed and documented, you, you're giving a level of protection in that will to that person who's deceased or who's, who's writing the will, um, that if there is an attack, they've got an extra level of protection because they can tell um, the court what their piece, what, what this what the attitude towards that person was. And it's going to, you know, I think there's a mindset that, you know, keep your mouth shut if you can't say something nice, but it's the opposite in this situation with the will, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The more information, mm-hmm. the more storytelling, mm-hmm. the more clarity about mm-hmm. your decision, mm-hmm. the better. Because what the court will look at is evidence and they will want to know about the relationship, they want to know about um, a whole lot of things. So the more evidence you can create, well, in, in sure that you have, the better. Even though it's uncomfortable for that child to read it? Well, again, that's always a judgment call. And that's something that you need to think about when you're making the will. Is this something you really want to do? Do you really want to do this? Because being fair and equitable and equal is obviously the best thing you can do. The law's are pretty hot on that, aren't they, really? You know, there's got to be a damn good reason to go outside of that presumption. Well, there was that very interesting case in Perth, similar legislation, similar, you know, each state has its own legislation that's very, very similar. And um, uh, I think it was a, a huge estate, massive estate, illegitimate child, made a claim because it had not been provided for in the will. Um, she sought a claim of, I think it was about $5 million um, or $3 million. It was relatively modest in terms of this enormous estate. And quite famously, the court awarded her $28 million because they were trying to give some parity to what the other children had received. Wow. Now, when people are choosing executors for the will, is it advisable that you put um, one or two people in there? And would you suggest that they get someone like a lawyer and an accountant in there to bring some value as an executor to the situation? Look, that really depends, Kim, on the uh, the family relationships. Ordinarily, with a husband and wife, 
happily married, you would put um, your husband and wife. So in your situation, Kim, you would have, you know, probably recommend that your wife is your sole executor. No problems with that because she's the closest person to you. She's the person you trust the most. Um, but then backups, backup executives, um, trusted people. Now, there might be some good reasons why you might want to have a solicitor or a trusted lawyer as your executor. And I do have, from time to time and increasingly, increasingly, Kim, I'm being asked to be an executor. Now, as, a, as an executor, I'm entitled to charge a fee for anything I do. Um, it's probably not a lot different from what I do do when people come to me. I'm not named as executor, but they ask me to do all of the legal work because it is quite a legal process. Um, the executor's job is to make sure that the contents of the will is um, met, is executed. So you, you actually read the will and you make sure that everything in the will is done. So if there's a challenge in court, the executor's role is simply to abide by the decision of the court. It, 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 it's pretty much to say, okay, well, this is what the will says. If the court's going to interpret it, oh, we'll have to stand back and, wait and, and be told by the court what the interpretation is. So it, it's an interesting job. That's, that's really good. Um, so in the situation where this person's died, Getting the death certificate. You can't really do anything until the death certificate's been issued, can no, you? No, no. How long does it generally take and who's that sent to? It's sent to the funeral director. Um, all death certificates go via the funeral de- director who will then pass it on to either the executor or the next of kin. Okay. Um, and then once you've got that, you can start thinking about applying for probate. That's correct. And finally, this is a part where I step in. Listing the assets and liabilities is a big component to that. It is. It's a very important component, and that's why we apply for probate. We apply for probate because we have assets that require the certificate from the court that is endorsing the will and saying, yes, you must transfer this house to this person or you must transfer these shares to the, to the executor or to the beneficiaries. So without that certificate from the court, we can't transfer those assets. Okay, so you've applied for probate. How long does it usually take to have probate issued? What's the sort of time frame? Well, that would entirely depend on the, on the Supreme Court Probate Office. Um, they're very good at the moment. Um, it would be probably between six and eight weeks sometimes it can be a little faster than that sometimes it can be a little longer than that occasionally it will take longer because it's a complex estate and there might be some verification required or if a court action is brought sometimes you can people lodge a caveat on the will and that will prevent probate being um, granted and that's where there might be a dispute about um, uh, coercion or oppression or somebody who didn't have capacity to make the will in question. So that can then delay the proceedings. This just made me think of something. Have you ever done a will for someone on, on their deathbed in hospital? Absolutely. Can you can yeah. tell us the story behind yeah. it? Well, very, this, is, well, this is a very sad story, but um, we were called, or I was called to go and make a will 
for somebody who had who was dying, they were quite young. Um, they'd had cancer for some time, but they'd finally they were in hospital. I went in, I saw him. He appeared to be fine. He had, um, I think, yes, it was cancer. But um, and and I took the instructions and I said I'll be back in the morning. You can see where this story is going. Oh yes. I'll be back in the morning with the will typed up for you to sign. Um, sadly, he died overnight. Um, just a, a, some dreadful, got some dreadful fever and just died immediately. So he didn't actually get to sign his will. Um, that was very sad. So what happened? Um, well, in my circumstances, I had his instructions mm. and we have a practice that wherever we take instructions from somebody for their will, we get them to sign it. Now, interestingly, just this week, the Supreme Court in South Australia has passed a decision that said that an unsent text message was evidence of a will. So, an unsent text, an unsent text message, message can constitute a, a will. A will, <laughs> apparently. Oh, that's phenomenal, isn't it? So, where I take instructions from a client and I write them down in my handwriting, I get the client to sign it. I think that's going to be a good interim will in the in the circumstances. So that's what we do. In, in, particularly in those situations where somebody is might die. So did you uh, send in to the probate office a copy of your notes and yes, the story behind and, it? and say that this is the best will that we've got. And what did they come back and respond to yeah, you? Uh, um, you it, it's not a simple process mm. because it's not, it's not meeting all the requirements of a will. Um, you, so we have to do affidavits and from a number of people to verify why it was in that situation and what happened and, and that there is no other will and that we've looked for other wills or, or all the things that the, that the probate office might want us to verify to, to the court. Have you ever done a will on a deathbed where someone has flipped out at the last minute, cut someone out and then... Um, you know, let's just say that they've hooked up with a new girlfriend or whatever, but they've cut the first wife out and, you know, that sort of situation. Look, it's generally where there's been a, an ex-wife, if there's a divorce, um, there's been a property settlement, that's not usually the problem. The problem is where people have, have repartnered after separating and not done a property settlement. Now, this is hap this actually is happening more and more. So under, under, I mean, there's a number of laws that come into play here. There's the Family Law Act, which would, would give a right to a de facto spouse to bring a claim for a property settlement. Um, you, you could have somebody who's been in more than one relationship over a period of years who then faces their estate or their property having multiple claims made against it. So that doesn't really answer the question that you asked me, but I'm no, giving no, you another does, scenario. No, no, it does, because that has another level of complexity to it. That's where um, – this, is, uh, this is, is, is this a situation? Um, a husband and wife divorce and then so – let's just use the guy for example, but he then has a number of girlfriends – for three, four years at a time and, you know, they live with him and then they break up and they move out and then he has another. Is this Well, it's more – there are time limits. So okay. once you've divorced, you have only a year within which to bring a claim for a property resolution, oh, right. although the court can give extensions of time in certain circumstances. 
Um, so really you, you have one year after divorce. It's where they don't divorce. Um, and uh. see, if you don't divorce the time, and, and you've been married, the time limit for bringing a property claim doesn't ever run, doesn't ever finish. So, oh, where he doesn't divorce from the first yeah. one. Well, yeah, doesn't do the divorce. Ah, okay. And then just – and a lot of people don't bother about getting a divorce or doing a property settlement. So you could have a scenario. There's not a lot of assets. Somebody – people separate after having been married. They don't get divorced. They go on, form another relationship, start a business, have a, mm, an amazing success in their business, and um, suddenly the ex-wife – who they've been separated from, comes back and says, oh, I'm going to bring a property settlement now. Ah, yes. Or somebody has an inheritance. That's that's also quite common. Somebody has an inheritance and then suddenly um, there's some interest in or, or wins the lotto. <laughs> I think there's been cases about that. Okay. So there's this six-month rule, isn't there? After death. After death where you've got six months to challenge a will. So... It's not advisable if you're an executor of a will to do any distributions before that six-month time frame. Look, that's a really interesting point, Kim. Um, in other states in Australia, in fact, it's prohibited and, and people and the practice is not to distribute until after that six months and there's a requirement to advertise in the paper uh, before you do distribute. We don't have those requirements here and actually it is quite common to distribute um, under the six-month period where there's no suggestion that there's going to be a claim. If there's a suggestion that there is going to be a claim, then you would wait. Um, well, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because I, I know in another situation that I've been involved in, um, this gentleman had made a... He was living with this de facto. He had made an agreement with her with what she would get, but she was effectively entitled to half of his estate because she's been with him for 20 years. But he agreed to give her, a, you know, a smaller amount. So we were worried like hell that at any time in that six-month period, mm, mm. she was going to get one, you know, one of her kids or whatever was going to speak to a lawyer and stepkids mainly mm. were going to speak in her ear about her right mm. to, now that he was gone, to claim half of this day. Mm. But that letter never came. But mm. in that situation, I guess, where there is the opportunity for a challenge... Um, don't do anything for six months. Yeah. Well, I had one where I was the executor and very unusual case. The um, the person who made the will, the deceased, was about 94 when she died and I went to her funeral. She had one son. She'd made the will um, and, and I'd been made the executor and I knew about the one son. She was estranged from him, but she had left everything to him. Went to the funeral, and at the funeral there were ten people. There were me. There was me. There was the son and his wife. There was a couple of friends of the deceased, and then there was her illegitimate seventy-two-year-old daughter. Oh my God! Who had never been mentioned. Uh, hang on. But everybody knew about. Except for you. <laughs> Except for me. <laughs> So we waited for the six months because I fully anticipated that the 72-year-old illegitimate daughter would make a claim, but she didn't. It's nice when they don't. Mm. Now, the messy side of all of this, challenging a will, 
personally think there's an incentive to challenge a will because if it's a large state and you think that you've got to have grounds, but often these people with big asset pools try to play God and even up the financial playing field with the kids, which I'm not encouraging, but it often happens. It does. And if that does happen, um, the, per- the child that's missed out is definitely entitled to challenge the will. The fact that I found find interesting is that the money used to f- f- pay the legal fees to challenge the will come out of the estate. Mm, generally speaking. Yeah, generally speaking. Yeah. So it's free to challenge. That's what I'm getting at. Yes, it, it does make it easier for people to challenge. And I think that's what's quite deliberate in the legislation. Um, I think the intention was quite honourable that, you know, where somebody had been um, omitted from the will and it was unfair, that they should have the ability to challenge it. I see that, um, you know, I do quite a bit of um, succession planning with large farming estates and in the rural sector there is still a, a desire to hand on the land as though you're a custodian of the land to the next generation. and The eldest son, generally often, speaking. Often the eldest son. Well, it's often the eldest son who's come back to farm on the land. It's like winning the lottery for them. Well, it is and it isn't because sometimes it can be a burden, but it is because the asset is worth so much money, so much money, and it is inequitable to give one person a $5 million farm. $5 million. And the and often they are between three and five million dollars, you know, at least. And and a, you know the daughter who's gone to university, nothing. Um, it's it's just not fair. Hmm. So th- there is quite some strategies that have to be devised if you're going to to do the asset planning involving those really large assets. What would your advice be in that situation to that daughter? Would you? Um, encourage people to challenge wills? Do you try to talk them out of it? Yes. um, It it depends completely on the situation because it it, it will depend on all of the circumstances and including, you know, their own circumstance and whether they are going to be able to live with the decision not to challenge or to challenge Mm. because no matter how good your relationships might be, going to court will severely test any friendship, let alone sibling relationship. Do you normally see in those situations that it leads to irreparable damage to the family unit? Absolutely. It's very hard to come back from, from, from a fight in court and to have Christmas together again. Yeah, that, it's interesting because um, I don't think people are aware of the impact I think that that daughter in that situation wants justice, fairness, but it's going to rip it will come at a cost. the heart and soul out of the brother mm-hmm. and it comes at a massive mm-hmm. cost. And she has to realise too that if she does win, there'll be legal fees to pay. And it may, depending on how well the will's drafted, it may be a tougher challenge than she imagines. And it's just tough going to court. Um, whenever you go to court, you you're in, you are putting your problem in the hands of somebody else and you don't know that person, you don't know how they're going to judge the evidence, they don't know how, you don't know how they're going to judge you, you don't know what's going to happen on the day. So there's a, l- a high level of uncertainty about actually 
stepping into the courtroom door. And the thing that I'm fascinated by is it's all handled by the Supreme Court. Now, yes. That's like the most expensive court. Look, it is and it isn't. In, there's not a big difference between um, the fees in the Supreme Court than the District Court. Uh, there's not a big difference in, in cost. Uh, obviously, in the Magistrates Court, there is, there's a, a, a high level, uh, jurisdictional level, I think it's $25,000, where you can't have a lawyer representing you. In, in our current judicial system, it's virtually impossible to go to court uh, on a piece of litigation like this without a lawyer. It, it, it's, oh, it's, it's impossible. Yeah. And you've got, to have, you've got to have a solicitor and then you've got to have an, what used to be a QC. And these guys, they know how to charge. Well, um, I'm, I'm referring now to the barrister because um, in the situations I've been involved in, um, it's a lot of head nodding, it's standing up, um, it's outlining points of law and, you know, and they get paid a fortune for this. They do, but it's a very, very arduous job. Oh, it's extremely stressful. Yeah, and the rules that barristers have to present their cases under are very, very specific. They're very technical. Mm. It's not just a matter of standing up and saying this is the story. They're, they're, it, it's a, a highly specialised and skilled business. One final question for you. This has been fantastic. Um, testamentary trusts, what is your feeling towards them? When, when do you think they're useful? When, when do you like using them? Well, that could be another whole session on its own, Kim. <laughs> um, a lot of people don't really understand what testamentary trusts are. I heard somebody refer to one yesterday, and they, I can't remember now what they used. It was completely the wrong word. Um, but anyway, a testamentary trust is a trust that's been created in the will, and it only comes into effect on death. And I see people using testamentary trusts in a variety of situations. One that is quite common is where, you know, unfortunately we do have significant mental health issues in the community and, we, and they often go hand in hand, hand with drug use. And in a family, if you, if you have a high net worth individual and you have a child who falls into that category, Using a testamentary trust as a, as a means of providing for that child, maybe equally with everybody else, but providing for that child with, to ensure that they can't have access to the money for nefarious activities by putting a trustee in place who will use the money for that child's benefit um, going forward is a really good, sensible thing to do and it gives a lot of peace to the person making the will because they know that they've chosen somebody who's going to look after this child, provide for them, but the money won't be used for drugs. So you It's know, a great approach. Yeah. It, it can really work in that scenario. Stretching the money out over their lifetime so they don't blow it all in the first yeah. six months. And the other way, Kim, and you are obviously better able to speak about this than me, is that testamentary trusts can be used quite tax effectively where you have children under 18. So if you if you can set up a testamentary trust for a child who has your grandchildren um, and so the trust is for the child and the grandchildren's benefit, then they come along to Kim. Kim will then be able to advise about the tax effectiveness of distributions to the grandchildren in a tax-effective way. So that's a very useful tool. That's part I love. Mm. <laughs> 
All right, Rosie, this has been fascinating. You have, and this is no word of a lie, but your knowledge level is much higher than I expected. <laughs> I know you didn't prepare for this, so you've just done an outstanding job off the cuff. So Rosie Bat, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Kim.